this podcast, Eric McNulty talks about leading the future in crisis. So, stay tuned. So, welcome everyone to Work Through Auto Podcast. Today, we have with us Eric McNulty, uh, a brief bio. So, Eric serves as an Associate Director for the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative and the Harvard THN Program for Health Care Negotiation and Conflict Resolution, and is also an instructor at the Harvard THN School of Public Health, a contributing editor and columnist at Strategy Plus Business Magazine. He has written uh, for Harvard Business Review, among many noted publications and websites. He is the co-author of the second edition of the renegotiating healthcare, uh, resolving conflict to build collaboration. And today we'll also talk about his new baby, uh, you are it. So I think it will be a fun conversation. So Eric, welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Beautiful. So why don't we talk about um, your journey? Like what brought it to, to this point, If your background and, and walk us through that. It's, it's a long and twisted tale, but I'll give you the short version of it, which is that I uh, after graduating university, went into communication roles, primarily in the private sector, um, and began to learn a bit about business. Wound up working at Harvard Business Publishing, which is how I started mm -hmm. writing for Harvard Business Review, uh, and helped them start and lead a conference business, um, and which got me in, in uh, introduced me to a lot of different areas, from supply chain management, analytics, did a lot of work in that space, as well as strategy and management, and more sort of mainstream business topics. And um, that was a great business doing events worldwide mm. and you may recall your your viewers may recall there was a small dip in the economy back in 2008 uh, which is when the conference business went away because mm. no one's spending money on travel and trading <laughs> and it happened by by uh, by coincidence to two gentlemen who I had hired as speakers were two of my current co-authors Lenny Marcus and Barry Dorn who were working at the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health and I have been working with them around electronic medical records and what were the barriers to implementation of technology in that space. Mm. Uh, I had lunch with them, um, when, and we were just beginning discussing their current work, which was much more around crisis leadership. And they asked if I could help them write a book. And I said, I think I can probably do that. So I started working with them. We actually published one prior to this, which is uh, renegotiating healthcare, building uh, collaborate, uh, resolving conflict to build collaboration, and. Um, it, this introduced me to the world of crisis leadership, of this notion of disaster response. And as someone who loves to learn, I've learned an awful lot. Uh, again, having spent most of my time with people in the private sector in the business world, all of a sudden I'm working with people like the, the Secret Service and FEMA and military organizations and they're very service-oriented. Mm. Lots of really smart people doing interesting work, but a world I had not been exposed to before. Interesting. And what brought you to this um, this idea of conflict resolution? Like, what what excited? Well, it's again that root was 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 uh, rooted in healthcare, hmm. um, where there is lots of conflict. Uh, always there's lots of conflict. In part because there are differences between there's clinical differences of how do I treat this versus that. There are the different interests of stakeholders of, of patients, patient families with their caregivers, there's the whole business end of it of how do we pay for this, and certainly in the U.S. I mean, we mm -hmm. have a unique system here, uh, we're a profit-making system, so there's lots of, bear, of of battles over who does what, how do we pay for it, who has the, the, the authorization to do certain things. And the interesting thing to me was, while 
again, in the business world that I was familiar with, there was sort of leadership over here and negotiation over there. They were thought of as two separate hmm. worlds. Interesting point. And actually, they're very much integrated. And I remember interviewing a CEO from one of the hospitals here in Boston as, as part of the process of writing that first book. And he said to me, any interaction you have with another human being hmm. with a desired outcome is essentially a negotiation. Whether that's your subordinate, your spouse, your child, your board, whoever it happens to be, if, if you have an interaction with someone and you have a desired outcome, you're essentially negotiating something. So you're negotiating all day long. And I think that's one of the things that makes this book different, our work different, is that, it, I don't want to say by accident, but it was mm. because of the roots from whence it came, that that negotiation and conflict resolution mindset is baked into how we think about things. So it's a lot about framing things as problem solving. How do you get people to see each other's perspectives? How do you create uh, unity of effort? That all comes out of the negotiation space. And so it's, sort of, it's very much woven into how we, how we just think about leadership. Interesting. And, and explain us um, what your typical day looks like. Uh, if only I had two days that looked the same, um, I, I, which is one of the things I, I really like about my job. Is so I, I, I write, I research, I teach, do a lot of mentoring of students, mm-hmm. um, and they that, that happens both here in, in, in Cambridge at the Harvard campus, but I also do a lot of travel worldwide. I do a mm-hmm. lot of, of work both in custom exec ed programs as well as speaking in things. And so I get to meet lots of interesting people, which is part of what keeps me going, mm. uh, constantly learning more, bringing things in, finding out how different people approach their situations. Um, so I will do, in any given day, I probably spend a couple of hours reading, and mm. that's a broad range of, mm. of things. Um, I will very often write things, writing helps me process things, and then I'll be having conversations, be it with students, with colleagues, w- with others, um, and then you know, June is my probably my busiest month of the year. I'll do teach two exec ed programs, at Harvard, um, we'll do a week of, of media appearances around the book launch, um, and then shortly thereafter, I'm off to Singapore to do some uh, do, do some work there over the summer. So it's uh, never a dull moment. <laughs> That's fun. So um, let's talk about your it. And uh, full disclosure, I didn't get a chance to read the book. Uh, I I will. Uh, I promise you that. So tell us the premise. Why this book? Like what this book? So the reason we brought we, we decided to write a book, this is more than 15 years of work baked into it. Mm. Um, and what we had come up with, and our, our work is, we're in an academic institution, and there's academic rigor behind it, but it's very much field-based. So whenever mm. we are doing our research, we're trying to be in the field, sitting with executives, with leaders, when they're making decisions, when they're taking action, to learn what works and what doesn't in a really high-pressure environment. Mm. And so I was. I went to the Gulf during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, for example. I was mm. in New York and New Jersey after Sandy, here in Boston after the Marathon bombings and other interviews. And we came up with a set of core principles that people told us actually were really useful. Mm. I don't mean that in a, in a, in a bragging way, but mm. you know, what we have in, in your what we call our, our meta-leadership framework, is exactly that. It's a framework on which you can helps you organize both what you've learned academically, your work experience, your education. You know, so you're a big Jim Collins fan. Great. This this is a way of looking at that and helping organize it with other things you've gotten. Or if you're you know in analytics, and you're a big Tom Davenport fan. Mm. Well, this is a way to think about that as well. And so when we realized that 
you can only reach so many people mm-hmm. through classroom experiences, no matter how many lectures you give, no matter, you know, no matter how many frequent flyer miles you accommodate, right. you accumulate, right. there's only so many people you can reach. Right. And that we had gotten to the point where we thought a book would help get it out to a broader audience, get it in the hands of people. Because again, we're looking at leading through crisis and change, which I think describes a lot of people's world these days. Um, if we can help them do their job a little bit better, mm-hmm. navigate things a little more sure-footedly, that's just good for everyone. So let's get these tools out there as, as broadly as we can and try and hopefully have a positive impact on people. Interesting. Uh, very fair point. So from your perspective, what exactly is a crisis? What do you, how do you define a crisis? So we look at a crisis as any incident that could affect your reputation, your share price if you're a public company, mm. or your ability to operate. So it's not a routine emergency. It's mm. not uh, just that you know the, the fender bender, as it were. Mm. Um, it's what is that thing that's really going to affect your company, your organization, its ability to operate, or the way the public perceives you over the long haul. Interesting. And and what? Um, how does a leadership change when it comes to when I'm in crisis or whether I'm not in crisis? That's a really interesting question, and I think the the answer we came up with is a bit counterintuitive because we started out mm-hmm. thinking that um, okay, there's sort of day to day leadership, and then there's crisis leadership, and this mm-hmm. is dramatically different. What it turns out actually it isn't. It's not in that you in, in a crisis you play at a much higher level because the stakes are higher, mm-hmm. but the core skills aren't that different, or at least the things you that help you in crisis help you every day as well. So when you think about high emotional intelligence the ability to make decisions amidst ambiguity, to communicate clearly and get people moving in the same direction. Those are the things that are good in every day in most organizations. People still have a hard time with them, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. uh, many times. But those are the things that are absolutely essential in crisis. It isn't that you have necessarily the person who is the bravest or the smartest. Often it's the person who how to ask ask really smart questions uh, and to engage people and get them moving in the same direction, to be able to sense that the the, the emotional temperature of a room and what you need to do to uh, to diffuse te- diffuse tension sometimes or to, to overcome objections, get people moving. And so the crisis leader who is, who is a really effective is, just, is really good at those things. So it's almost mm. if you think of a, uh, a professional athlete versus an amateur athlete who, who mm. just does something on the weekend. Often they're using the same equi- similar equipment they're playing with similar rules. They may even be playing you know, in the same physical dimensions of a, of a court or a field. Mm. But the professionals do it at a much higher level. And that's where the great crisis leaders come in. So they, you, know, you look at your, your, your golfing stars, whatever your favorite sport happens to be. You know, I just, I'm thinking recently of Tiger Woods and his comeback. Mm. You know, Tiger plays the same game that people are playing you know, around the corner from, from your studio on the weekends. But you, there's a big jump in, the, in their in their capability, their capacity. Interesting. Uh, very interesting point. So, in from your vantage point, in your research, where have you seen, like, what are some of the qualities that the leaders, leaders carry that makes them a great crisis leader? Uh, we'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. And again, this is a bit counterintuitive. One of the things that jumps to mind right away is that they tend to be really good listeners. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because again, you know, when we look at mm-hmm. think about we, we use this framework called meta leadership, mm-hmm. and there are three dimensions to it. The first dimension is you, the person. Who are you as an individual? Um, you know, what is your education, your expertise, what's your emotional temperament? So knowing yourself and what you bring. But the second dimension is the context, the situation in which you're leading, knowing what's really going on, so therefore you can know what to do about it. And then building connectivity, the third dimension is connecting the right uh, organizational entities and individuals to be able to tackle the problem at hand. When you're a really good listener, you can find out what's going on with other people. Mm. You get a sense of the situation, and then you can and you can begin to build that connectivity. But if you aren't open to listening, you just come in in, in telling mode. Mm. You often miss a lot of the the data. You you miss a lot of the significance. You don't see the patterns of what's emerging. Mm. And so we find that their listeners they ask a lot of really good questions. They're very curious and never afraid. Again, I've been with people who who are um, very senior in their careers, very accomplished, still not afraid to ask. So mm. what what am, what am I missing here? Or what's really going on? What do you see? Turning to a more junior person and saying, what are you seeing going on here? Um, they're always gathering information. And, and then there's the ability to uh, to maintain calm in a high-pressure situation. Again, it's for the emotional intelligence to be able to regulate mm. your emotions. Um, often it's understanding that when you're in a crisis situation, rarely is it personal. Now, if you've done something bad, it may be personal. Mm. But if you're just the... Uh, you know, senior vice president at Acme, Analy- uh, you know, Acme Analytics, let's say, right? and something goes wrong and people are yelling at you, they're not yelling at you. Right. They're yelling at the person who happens to have your job. Right. And being able to create that distance and then regulate your emotions so you're not, um, you're not overly reactive, but you can say, okay, I can understand why that person's upset. I can understand why, how we're going to try and solve the problem. Let me tone, those, tone the emotions down a bit. That ability is is really powerful and, and really critical to being able to lead through a crisis. Interesting. And 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 um, in your research, what are some of the some of the interesting areas where um, some of the pitfalls that leaders fall into when they when they sort of tackling a, a crisis situation? What are some of the things where you see that some of the common pitfalls that that leaders find themselves into? There are there are several. Um, and the, the the first of which is to, is to fail to get themselves out of what we would, panic mode or what we would call mm. the emotional basement, mm. um, because we are we as humans mm. we're hardwired to react to threat. We have what's called a triple F, the freeze, flight, fight response. Mm. It's common to all humans, all man, all mammals, actually all animals, I believe. Mm. Um, and it's just a basic survival mechanism. It's how. And whether that is a threat is is gunshots or someone cuts you off on the highway, when your your brain senses threat, it has this survival reaction. It puts you in panic mode to keep you alive. That's your brain's primary job. Knowing that's going to happen, you have to know how to get yourself out, which you can do through demonstrating any kind of self-competence. Um, so knowing what to do. It could be a, a practice routine or a protocol. It could just be some deep breathing. So mm. Three deep breaths. Count to ten. Um, I know my grandmother always said, when you're angry at someone, count to 10 before you say anything. Mm. And I didn't realize my grandmother was a neuroscientist, but apparently she <laughs> was because she understood how this worked. Um, but it's one of the pitfalls. And, and, I, and I have, again, I've seen a very accomplished people with lots of experience who were, when they confronted with a novel threat, they went into this panic mode and they just did not know how to get themselves out. Mm. And so when, when you don't, you're not reasoning very well. 
you are not controlling your emotions. You're not interacting with people in a productive manner. So you can get stuck. Again, we call it being in the basement. You can get stuck there and good things are not going to happen because you're just not in the right frame of mind. So that's certainly one. A second one that we've seen is becoming a single point of failure. So feeling mm-hmm. like, okay, I, you know, I'm in charge. I'm the boss. Um, this this crisis, I've got to, I've got, I have to resolve it, not we. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make every decision. So I'm going to want everything to go through me. And when you do all that, you you create a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And whereas the really good crisis leaders say, okay, I know which decisions. I've, I, I've figured out which decisions only I can make. The other ones, I want to make sure they're delegated and the people with the right expertise, they're making them and things are happening. So you don't want to suck everything up into the middle. You actually want to push a lot out. So you may say, okay, that decision to evacuate our facility, yes, I'm going to make that one. Mm -hmm. But all these other ones leading up to it, I want the right people. And if you've got a strong team around you doing their jobs, they're getting that ready. So when when the decision comes, you know what you need to know. You can make that decision with some confidence. So if you're a single point of failure, that's another place that things that people can fall down. Um, and then the other one somewhat related to that is people can tend to isolate. They get mm-hmm. into their war room and they sort of close things off or they go into their, go into their office, close the door mm-hmm. and say, let me think about things. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you need to do that for a few minutes, that's fine. But um, you need to be connected to the rest of your team and then perhaps outside experts, your customers, your suppliers, what else is going on in this, in this crisis? And if you're locked away, um, you know, again, in an office or a war room, not getting that information, you, the event is, is moving and your thinking is not. So you're not keeping up with the evolution of the crisis. So it's important to know, yes, take some quiet time for you to think about something, but know that's a very intentional choice. I'll be back to you in 10 minutes. I'm going to go mm-hmm. think about this. As opposed to some people who just go in, they close the door, and they, you don't see them for hours, and people then become afraid to come in and talk to them. So those are three big ones of being isolated, becoming a single point of failure, or failing to get out of the basement. Interesting. Wow. Um, good to know. I think, so one uh, conversation I was um, I was thinking about when we were talking about one of the major telecoms um, senior executive, and he was telling me, Vishal, my strategy is you should always outsource crisis, right? So you should you should pull yourself out of it, right? Just outsource because you are we are very hackable human being. We are emotional. We are many 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 times we find ourselves into interesting pitfalls that we have not never experienced before. Now, from your vantage point, like how how accurate his his um, uh, thinking or what what what's your take on this? Well, I think that's an interesting perspective. I think that there are, well, first of all, let me say, you, you want to be as intentional as possible about as many choices as possible. Mm-hmm. So there are things you may want to outsource. And I can certainly see where, yes, we need outside counsel because there are legal issues mm-hmm. here that are beyond what our in-house counsel is used to dealing with. Or we need more communications capabilities. So we're going to outsource, we're going to set up a, a customer hotline, let's say, and Great. There are companies that do that, and you can give them a script, and you can begin to get that going. Um, you may also want to have, and I think it's a very good idea to have uh, a team of people who you can count on, but who are one step removed, so you can bounce things off of them. Sort of a team B, as it were. Um, 
So you can say, hey, we're thinking about thinking about doing X, make the counter case. Hmm. Um, and those, again, could be internal people, but often the, the outside people, you, you can, if you've, uh, it could be, uh, I don't want to say friends, but certainly peers, hmm. um, or it could be alumni from the company, people who know you well enough and who are loyal, but who are a little bit one step removed, so they aren't quite as emotional. Hmm. But in the end, I think there are going to be decisions you have to make hmm. that are going to affect the future of your company. So I don't see how you can outsource those. I think you've got to say, you know, okay, this is going to affect us for the long term. Mm. We've got to live with it. You can't outsource those things. Uh, otherwise, you lose control and you just say, let's see what happens. That's a fair point. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website, firstfridayfair.com. .tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. And one more conversation I was thinking about. So um, I was discussing this book, Extreme Leadership, you must have heard of. Yes. So I was talking to uh, one of the executive about um, this idea of that in, 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 in sort of in war areas, uh, typically general, they simulate a lot of war situations. So they don't, when, when they are seeing one, mm-hmm. they're not going to the, the, the three F response. They have sort of a very methodical way or rational way to deal with those situations. And, and this, um, this guy, uh, he told me that, um, you know what, but we can't simulate everything else. Right. So <laughs> his perspective was, okay, I have, I have a routine way of doing business. Mm-hmm. But then for me, crisis is there is everything like anything that could go wrong, right? And and with some with some skill and and magnitude. So how how uh, if I'm a leader, what would a leader do to prepare themselves to be sane and rational when they when they end up getting into these um, crisis situations? Well, I think there are a couple of things, and and crises are essentially problems to be solved, mm-hmm. and so framing it in that way can help. Um, I one of the people we interviewed for the book was the head of a uh, investment bank in New York, and we were talking to him originally because he, he his firm lost a number of people on 9/11, hmm. and we wow. wanted to learn about that, wow. and which I won't tell that story. But afterwards, he gave me a, a tour of the trading floor. The first time I'd been on an investment bank trading floor, and it was wow. a sea of people with multiple computer screens and multiple f- telephones, and it seemed sort of chaotic. And I turned to him and I said, "How do you manage this?" because this is going 24-7, instant decisions. And he said, rule number one, bad news finds me fast. He said, if I know about a problem, I can help solve it. He said, you'll never get fired here for making an honest mistake, but you'll get fired in a heartbeat for trying to cover one up and solve it yourself. Wow. And so there's one way. First of all, it helps prevent small emergencies from becoming crises, because Mm. if you find out about it quickly and you start solving it, Mm. um, you you can mitigate some of the risk and you begin to take action early. Um, secondly, when you create an environment where people are not afraid to tell truth to power and come to you and say, uh-oh, this doesn't look good, boss, mm. um, it puts you in a place where you can help solve it and it doesn't become adversarial. It becomes, okay, something happened. Let's figure out what we're going to do about it. And then at a uh, sort of more mundane level, I had a person who used to work for me, a young woman, and she was running operations when I was running that conference business I mentioned earlier. Mm. And in, invariably, you're at a live event Something goes wrong. A speaker right. doesn't show up. The AV doesn't work. And people would begin to panic. And she would always say, okay, is anyone bleeding from the head? Mm. We think it would stop everybody. She said, because <clears throat> if they are, 
I know who to call. Mm. And if they're not, we can figure this out. So it framed it in a way of, so here's the extreme thing. Okay, is anybody going to die? Mm. No. Okay, if nobody's going to die, then we can figure this out. Everybody just take a step back and relax a little bit. And, and it's, I think it's really helpful to be able to, to get people out of the, oh, no, what's going wrong, to here's a problem, let's solve it. Okay, do we have everybody here? We need to solve it. Do we need to get somebody else involved? Do we need more expertise? Do we need more perspective? But you get them in that mode and, and get them doing little things they know how to do um, to, to start moving the process forward. Everyone calms down and, and then you can help. You can begin to solve it. So I think, again, I, and I've talk, talked with and, and been with many people who have had to make life and death decisions. Mm. And often it is just that sort of deep breath. Okay, what are my options? What are we going to do? And it is looking at that as a problem to solve that puts it in a different place. Because you're right, you know, you're, you're, the person you interviewed is correct. There's the things we know how to do, the ads of everyday business. And that's, right. that's nice. Um, but in, in the turbulent world in which we live, in a world with a lot of technology change and other things, uh, other change afoot, you often hit with things you haven't seen before. So you've got to have com- be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Which can be difficult, but again, if you're if you're a real problem solver, which I think is a, is a critical skill these days, uh, and certainly going forward, uh, that becomes a challenge, not something you're be afraid of. Interesting. I think you you give a very interesting point. So common purpose, right? Giving them a common purpose. Mm-hmm. What are some of the some of the um, tips or tricks you could share? Because I think one thing that 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 definitely we all have seen. If the larger and larger a, a company, the more sort of discreet and random the people are working and in use cases, and it's very difficult to give these tens of or hundreds of thousands of workers a common purpose that unite them or basically mm-hmm. give them a this swami leadership kind of a uh, concept. So, what are some of some of your strategies that you have seen or something you could share? Well, I think. Yeah, and you're you're exactly right because people are they're doing their everyday job. They're they're all over the you know maybe geographically located over the place. They're different in part different parts of the business, and you may even have many different uh, streams of business within a single organization. So it is mm-hmm. tough to keep them unified. However, what I have seen work is to have very strong common values and operating principles. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean, so I'll give an example of uh, one large company. Work with in the energy business, so they mm. have again lots of different streams of business, but they're in the energy sector. Mm. And the, the common framework they use is prioritizing: it's people, environment, assets. And if you're in a situation, whatever it happens to be, and you've got to make decisions, you prioritize people, then the environment, and then the business assets. Mm. And if you do that, they will support you. So they may not know exactly what the problem is you are facing, mm-hmm. but when you look at it afterwards and say, I made this decision because mm-hmm. here's the evidence I had and I was prioritizing taking care of the people, mm-hmm. then they will back you up. And, and that very simple framework gives people something to say, okay, I know what to hold on to, even when things are, seem chaotic, I've got it. That's our common orientation. Um, there's a bank in the UK called Metro Bank, and one of the, the operating principles they have that I love is called one to say yes, two to say no. So whenever mm-hmm. a customer asks for something, if you want to say yes, you're empowered to do so. If you think you need to say no, you go have to find someone else to 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 double check you. Wow. Whereas in most organizations, it's one to say no and two to say right. yes. Wow. 
And so there's one again, a very customer orientation. Mm. And so it, it helps people again. You don't want that common purpose to be so cumbersome that people are are afraid to act. Mm. But it really usually it often is okay. We take care of our customer. We, you know, we, we will never act in the in the uh, against the interest of our customer. That may be one you have. Okay, that helps you if you're the front line customer service rep at two o'clock in the morning mm. in a call center. That guides you. If you're the senior vice president making a big strategic decision, that guides you. That's how you create commonality. That's what you. That's what pulls things together. People know what you. They know what they stand for. They know what the priorities are mm. and what the values are of the, of the organization. Because I think the the thing where companies go wrong, we've seen a lot of scandals recently, mm. is it's really easy for the to try and create unity of purpose around share price. Right. Okay. What are the quarterly results? And that's great. I don't want to suggest they're unimportant. Mm. Right. But if people start making bad decisions because that they think is the ultimate. Uh, way they're going to be judged, then you get people who cut corners or mm. who fake data or who open accounts for customers without asking them because that's the one the one thing they see that's driving everything is that financial result. You need that financial result to be matched by things that are that keep you customer focused, keep you quality focused, so that you are the organization stays on track and yes achieves its financial goals, absolutely. Mm. But not you, know, you don't want to wind up Furting away those those financial gains in lawsuits and regulatory fines and all the rest. Interesting. I I think one thing that I'm I'm definitely curious to have your perspective on, and you have a beautiful uh, uh, definitely you would have a far better understanding of this than, than 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 I do. Is how do how do you know if you're in a panic mode? Like how do you know that? Because um, typically you are always behaving rationally, whether you're killing someone somehow. So how like what from your point of view what are the what are some of the like some of the thinking that I, okay these are checkpoints if I'm hitting those maybe I'm going the, extreme the um, well and actually I, I want to challenge you a bit and I think that the, mm. the research shows that we we as humans are less rational than we think think we are I agree and we are less are thinking less conscious than we think it is and the, and the work of Daniel Kahneman is, is very good here mm. it's a great mm. book I recommend a lot called Thinking Fast and Slow right. you may have read it. Yeah. Um, really good at understanding how your brain works. And so that panic reaction, it, it happens to all of us every day. Mm. Someone cuts you off on the highway. Do you calmly say, what a rude driver that was? Mm. No, you usually you beep the horn, mm. you may yell, you feel your breathing quicken, your heartbeat quickens a bit. Um, that's a sign it's happening. Mm. You're getting ready for work and you 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 open your wallet, you find out your significant other did an un, unannounced loan program. Again, you don't react mm. calmly. You 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 begin you you, you can sort of feel yourself. Your sweat glands activate. Mm. Once you get used to noticing it, you'll notice it all the time. And even people who are highly trained, I work with a lot of law enforcement officers. When they hear gunfire, they will go into that panic mode, but they will come out within a second because they know what to do. They have been trained, so they they hear that trigger. And they've got a trigger script, and they, they know they may go for weapon or radio, whatever it is, but they move toward things. And so, what I teach people is to three deep breaths is, is the one I, I use, and I think it works really well. Because if you get if you begin, become conscious of this, mm. say, oh, I feel my I feel a different physical reaction to what's happening. Stop. Let's just take three deep breaths. That alone will reset and get you out of that panic mode. 
because you're demonstrating self-confidence. You, okay, I know how to breathe in. I know how to breathe out. I'm in control. That takes less than 30 seconds. So that kind of thing. And, uh, but if, if you notice you're yelling, mm. if you notice you are slamming your fist or whatever, that probably means you're in panic mode. And, uh, and how many productive conversations happen when you're yelling at people? Whether right. it's a coworker or your spouse or your kids or the neighbor, whoever it happens to be, um, that usually isn't the best way to, to move things forward. And so when you feel yourself going in that direction, stop, take those three deep breaths or count to ten, that will recenter you. Interesting. And, and I think one thing that, that um, I have seen, and this is this is maybe personal to me, and, and I, I did get some of the feedbacks on this, that many times you don't know that you're in, you're in a panic mode. Many times you, it's a, sure, slamming something, mm. it's, it's pretty evident, right? So you yeah. have, at least you know that things are going way overboard. But sometimes these are like, uh, the panics are very passive in nature, right? They are just brewing inside, yes. whether you're just, whether you are panicking for something that's about to happen mm. or whatever is going on. So is there any way that, that metaphysically like you can figure out that, okay, this is something going on? Well, um, if you're not noticing your bodily reaction, right. the thing that we have found helpful is to share this this knowledge with people, with your family, with your coworkers, mm. particularly this knowledge around this, this language of the basement and the mm. fact that it's neurologically based. Mm. This is this is a how we're hardwired as humans. So it's not if mm. not like you're being overreacting. I can't say you're being overreactive. You're being overly emotional. Right. But I say I think you're you're in the basement, mm. and having just someone tell you they think you're in the basement will make you think maybe I'm in the basement. Let me get out of the basement. And so I remember um, during the Deepwater Horizon response, my colleague Lenny mm. and I were down there. It was our first the second day they had, they had stood up the National Incident Command. And we were with one of the senior officers there in the book um, who was a deputy national incident commander. And we were on a call with a bunch of governors, and it wounded with some acrimonious exchanges. Hmm. And when the phone was hung up, um, Peter Neffinger is the gentleman in, in question. He was sort of gray in the face. And he turned, and Lenny said to him, Peter, I think you're in the basement. He was like, oh, yeah, and it's dark down here. Um, <laughs> but just giving you a way to talk about it. Right. It, it, it diffuses some of the emotion, and that just that alone brought him out of the basement. Interesting. Whereas the person on the other end of the phone, um, I know, wasn't in the next meeting, but we heard about the next meeting, mm. stayed in the basement for a long time because nobody had to, to do that. But Interesting. it's one of the things when, we, when I, we do these trainings, I always say to people, take some of these tools back like the basement and share them with your team so you can say to each other, I think you're in the basement, or boy, I feel like I'm in the basement. And having a way to talk about it, talk about it, is is the first step to getting yourself out of it. Interesting. And and another perspective, right? So in some such situations, we know that the crisis is going on. It's very evident. But the responses that we hear or, or we see are not at par with what would alleviate or at least get the sentiment across. From your vantage point, what is lacking there? Like, what is or what what are the opportunities there? One example I can give you the Flint uh, scenario, right? Yeah. Flint, they are still struggling with getting water yes. to drink, and people know they they hide it, they did whatever, but still they know. So, what's going on? Like, what's your take from your research that that's that's causing? Uh, and and we can just count many of such debacles where it's 
it doesn't went the right way mm-hmm. so what what do you say has so, went wrong there or, or in some situations we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast so it's very 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 common the situation you mentioned is very common hmm. and one of the things we often say is that you may not be able to prevent the first crisis right there's a secondary and, and tertiary preventable crisis of a, of a bungled response so hmm. okay we find out there's lead in the water now hmm. someone's going to pay for that there's going to be right. some fact finding to figure out what happened um however if you react appropriately you can diffuse that crisis and first of all it means expressing empathy people often confuse expressing empathy with expressing guilt mm. so telling people you you are you understand their concern that you are going to do whatever it takes to take care of it that you're going to bring resources to bear and begin to show them that that's happening that helps diffuse everything and it helps keep the crisis from escalating but often because people are afraid of oh if i say anything that suggests that things aren't fine mm. that that's going to put guilt on us and it's going to, we're going to uh, in the inevitable lawsuits and regulatory hearings mm. we're going to look bad mm. well no you you're going to look bad anyway let's, let's, so let's stop right. that right. um however expressing empathy uh helping to, to share their outrage a bit maybe and because again you want to find out how did that water get there now if decisions were made, and I think in this case they were, mm. to uh, to take certain actions that resulted in that you've, uh, in, in lead winding up in the water, or right. we're seeing it now with Boeing, and we see it with other organizations, right. Right. Um, you've got a real culture problem there, and that may have been a crisis that was brewing for a long time, and you didn't find out about it until things got really bad. Until all of a sudden you get, you know, now the public finds out about it. Now you've got a news crew there looking at it. Hmm. But that crisis had been brewing for a long time. And that's one of those things that I, why I mentioned earlier the notion of having really solid values and principles hmm. is that um, I would hope that any organization that's charged with safety, whatever it happens, whether it's safety of the water supply or safety of the aviation system, hmm. one of those core tenants ought to be. If there's something that looks like it's wrong, we we need to find out about it quickly. So don't don't hide it. You know, one of the things we learned from wildfire fighters mm. um, that they that they train their crews to do is look for anomalies and report them up the chain of command quickly. Mm. So if a fire is behaving the way you expect it to, you keep following the protocols you've all rehearsed. Mm. But tr- but firefighters, the front lines are trained to notice when when things are different than they expect to be they expected them to see them and they're trained don't discount that mm. let somebody know so then you can figure out is that just something that's right a little different but it's, it's fine or is it the does it pretend something much worse happening uh, but i think what you have what you have in the in so many of these situations is what was a slow burn crisis that nobody was noticing but decisions were being made every day mm. saying this is okay, or the, I don't want to be the one who has to tell the boss the lead level is too high, right? Because that's going to cost a lot of money, and so it perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates until everything blows up and becomes a, becomes a major crisis. And so, um, you know, it's one of the things again we try and teach people is create a high signal to noise ratio in the feedback loops in your organization, right? 
so that when there is something and someone notices, it gets up and don't punish the messenger. Think back to that investment banker. Bad news finds me fast. Mm. If there's a you know a high lead level reading or there is something looking you know looks doesn't look quite right, it's better if people find out about it early and can take care of it than it continues to fester and becomes a major crisis later. I think so. You raised a very interesting point, culture, right? So if the if a crisis hits, then I think some of the things I think you you rightly pointed out that some of the things were just brewing inside. And now just it just all spurted out, and you realize it just became a toxic culture where just just everyone is just playing a blame game rather than doing something about it. So, from your vantage point, from your research, um, how to keep yourself in check that whether um, because when the when the crisis hits, your entire reputation is at stake. Your culture will be very exposed to the public. Whether it's like Uber is another great example, right? Yes. So you never realize everything was good, but then something hits and you realize there's just there's a lot more than than what we have heard about. So how to keep? Uh, if I'm an executive at at, at 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 any of these companies, how could I understand the culture? Because I'm always seeing yes faces all the time, and the support structure around me is making sure I'm always comfortable. So many times I don't even see those those areas where things are brewing. So what are some of the some of the things that you could suggest? Well, um, one is to make sure that you are getting some feedback from the front lines and just and, and hearing it. So I heard just happened to hear I was watching a video yesterday mm -hmm. to get ready to, to share with some uh, people in one of our current programs. Mm -hmm. um, it's unlearned by Barry O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who are who might want to go watch it. And he was talking about the CEO of T-Mobile. Mm. When, when he first assumed the job, one of the first things he did was have a, a line in his office connected directly to the customer support line. Mm. Apparently, he spent four hours a day, up to four hours a day just listening to customer calls. Wow. And that was how he learned what customers liked, what they didn't like, what they were struggling with, what they didn't understand, was actually listening to it. And... You know, I, I've been in many organizations where, you know, the senior executives will begrudgingly go spend maybe a half a day once a year mm. in a call center or on a retail floor or somewhere where they're actually interacting with customers. And it's like, oh, don't bother me with that. But finding a way that you're getting that, uh, getting some, some direct feedback from the end user is one good way. Um, and the second is to be open and asking about what's, uh, you know, do we think or do we know as people mm. are giving you their their uh, answers about what's going on? And if you if you know, so how do you know? Do we have data behind this? What 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 you what's looking in? One of my favorite examples here to a preventable crisis. Remember healthcare.gov? Mm. You know, dramatic failure. Right. And it turns out that because they were afraid of reporting a, but they might miss a deadline. They skipped the testing. Mm. They skipped the, the beta test. Now. What web presence, website anywhere, from the most basic, you know, lemonade stand up to a major government agency, has ever launched without a glitch? Mm, None true, ever, true, true, right? None ever. True. So to think somehow everything's going to go right, and if you're at the very top of that chain, you've got to be asking yourself, so, so how are we testing, or what what are we learning from our tests? What are we getting wrong? Mm. If nobody has an answer for you, uh, and then. When they give you that answer, celebrate them. Thank you. 
you know, very famous story of, of uh, John Mulally mm-hmm. took over as CEO of Ford. And those, his direct reports used to have, they have a, had a sort of basic traffic light schedule of reports, so green, yellow, red. Mm-hmm. Company was doing horribly. Everything in the reports was green. So he finally said, you know, so, so who's not telling the truth? And Mark Fields, who wound up being the next CEO after, after Mulally, uh, was the first person to come in, and his report actually had some greens and some yellows and some reds. And he said, thank God someone's finally telling me the truth. And so acknowledging you weren't going to get penalized for saying there are problems, but you're saying, okay, again, put problems on the table. We can try and solve them, but don't cover them up. So you've got to be, as the, the, the larger your organization, the more levels there are, the more intentional you need to be about making sure that those signals have got a way to reach you. And you've got, you've got to be reaching out. It could be walking around, you know, walking around the facility. It could be listening to a call center, being out on the retail floor, whatever it happens to be, you know, being on your airplanes, uh, just getting out there and interacting, so you get some direct, uh, some direct feedback. Interesting. Wow. So um, now let's let's spend a few minutes on your uh, why this title. My baby. Your baby. <laughs> why this title? Because when you're leading in a crisis situation or through significant change, you are it. People are looking to you for direction, for guidance, for answers. Uh, for some for a, a moral center, mm. uh, sometimes for uh, it may be outrage, it may be you know, what, what, what you, the, people are looking at you and saying, okay, someone needs to be leading here, mm. and they're thinking you're either because of your position, it could be because they know of your background, perhaps because of your your personality, but in that moment when you, the leading needs to happen, you are it, and you've got to be able to make decisions, take action. And so we gave it that title, and, and afterwards, talking to some of the, uh, the the crisis leaders we had come to know well through our research, mm. they said that's exactly it. Mm. So like you know, I, I admit I'm sitting here, it's kind of lonely, mm. um, but I've got to do something. You can't run away from it. You can't hide from it. You've got to do something. So um, you're it, and and knowing that you're in a you're it moment, uh, we hope, and with some of the tools and techniques we share in the book, will equip you to. Be, not be afraid of it, but step up and say, okay, here's an opportunity to make a difference, to do a, a good thing, and you'll step into the role and do well. Interesting. And and who do you write this book for? Like, who is the ideal reader uh, for this book? So there's a, a range of audiences here. And certainly, you know, again, through our work, we've dealt a lot with uh, people in the public sector mm-hmm. who are in, you know, first responders and organizations like FEMA and the Coast Guard and uh, various military organizations. But also corporate people, and they, one of the common uh, job categories is health, safety, and environment. And there's, that acronym changes a bit industry to industry. But there tend to be people in organizations who are in charge of that sort of physical safety and how do we keep things running, who will be the people who run the crisis management team when something's going on. Um, but I think more broadly than that, you know, and as we've done research in, in, in the book, we have, we have stories from social activists, we have stories mm-hmm. from... Uh, CEOs, we have stories from a number of people in diff- different positions who face that Europe moment. We have, we were able to, quite fortunate to interview one of the survivors of the Parkland shootings from Florida, mm. um, who was trapped in a classroom and unfortunately saw classmates die around her, um, but and then turned that into a positive experience of, okay, how do I take that horror that I experienced and go out and try and create some change in the world? Um, the, the, the world is not short of, of challenges that we face, major challenges that we face. So 
Um, you know, we want this to be the book to be fuel that inspires people and gives them pragmatic tools they can use to go out and, and tackle those challenges. Interesting. And and so if um, if I read through the book, like what what would I what would I my takeaway be? Like what would you think that a reader would take away from this book? Um, what I hope you take away from it is that. Um, you know, leader is not a, a a merit badge. It's not a it's not a title. At least I don't believe. I believe it's behaviors, not titles. Mm. And so that if you think you are leading, you better look and see if anyone's following. Um, and if they're not, you're not leading. I don't care how fancy your title is. Um, but that also, as we've come to know and understand people better, um, we can predict what they're going to need, what they're going to look for in a leader. Again, you know, they're going to they're going to go to that panic mode. They want somebody to help them get out. Help them assess the situation to understand what's going on. Have them who can craft and model the kind of behaviors mm. that will help the the, uh, the group of people come together and move toward that problem in a way that that solves it and and gets the best possible outcome. Interesting. And and um, from from your your vantage point and from your research, um, looking at the humanity where how, how we're evolving. How do you think we are faring as, say, crisis responders? Like, how is are we getting better at it? Are we getting worse at this? Are are the the crisis magnitude is different? Like, what are some of the things you could say that 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 maybe pushes me to consider reading this book? Well, I think that you know, actually, as as humans, as we get back to our basic humanity, hmm. we're pretty good at it. We're an inherently social species. We have evolved in a way that we know we are we are better to, we're safer mm. in groups. We have existed in groups for thousands of years, mm. and we will come together in the face of adversity. Uh, there's another another wonderful book. It's a few years old now called uh, Paradise Built in Hell mm. by Rebecca Solnit, mm. and she looked at from starting with the Cal the uh, San Francisco earthquake at the beginning of the 20th century up through Katrina. And what she found through a whole range of disasters was that people did come together and take mm. care of each other. Mm. Unfortunately, we're also really good at building impediments. Mm. Um, and whether that be uh, class-based fears, whether it be, certainly in organizations, we build lots of things that make it difficult to work together. Mm. We build these organizational silos and little fiefdoms and our rewards and recognitions may not actually re reward collaboration, but rather reward either individual achievement or my little team, not the, the greater good. Um, and so I think we're just beginning to figure out how to build organizations in a way that we, we, we call it swarming, but it's this ability to move swiftly and in synchrony to take care of a problem and to both respect organizational boundaries when they serve the problem solving mm. and be able to work across them when they are getting in the way. And so um, we've constructed most of our problems. And I think it's a bit, we have, it's a lot of learned behaviors. Again, when you think about it, when, I, mean, I don't know your full background, but it's somewhere around age five or six when they stop grading you and able to play well with others. Mm. And then you're competing against other people all the way through. Right. You know, I do a lot of work with, with physicians. And they get baffled by this collaboration bit. And I say, yeah, of course you're baffled. Mm -hmm. Because you were competing individually in secondary school to get into a good university. You were competing in university mm -hmm. to get into the right medical school. You were competing in medical school to get in the right residency. You were competing in residency to get the right permanent position. All the way through, it's been individual reward. And now mm -hmm. you get to the end of the pipeline and we say, oh, 
collaborate. You're not bred, you're not trained that way. Mm. Um, so we've got to get better at that. Interesting. And what are some of the surprises that that you uncovered while writing this book? Like some of the assumptions that that were reversed or that you didn't see fall through when when you were just doing research for this book. Um, well, one of them, and we spoke about this a little bit earlier, was that uh, we started out thinking crisis leadership was d- very much different than everyday leadership, and we found that it mm. isn't so much. It's, it's just at a higher level. But the other thing that I, I found really interesting was that was how the, so the some of the core stories were in this disaster response, you know, Deepwater Horizon or the Boston Marathon bombings or Hurricane Katrina. And then we began to talk to people in, in corporate settings uh, or we began to talk in nonprofit settings or even we, one of my favorite stories in the book is we talked to the gentleman who was the, the ultimately the, the final project manager on the renovation of the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston, mm. which was an incredibly complex project, um, having to keep one of the greatest museums in the world open while you almost double its square footage and dealt with antiquities and rare artworks and everything from union electricians to craftspeople building certain cases who came from Italy who didn't speak a whole lot of English. And you had all these, and oh, by the way, the budget mm. can't be exceeded. The deadline is firm. Um, it's a very public project. So the mayor's looking at you and the board is looking at you. Really, really complex. You think, how does that fit into this? Well, a lot of the principles he used to lead through that mm. were the same ones we saw in these other, other situations. There's a lot of commonality. And it does come back to understanding people understanding the situation in which you and they are operating, and then how do you build this connectivity so we're working on the same team to solve the right problems together as opposed to fighting each other. And that, to me, was great to see that it came out in so many different sectors beyond what we originally were considering. Interesting. And I think one thing that that I'm still finding it slightly harder to wrap my head around, so when you are in crisis, right, so aren't things different than, than when things are stable and, and they're growing like aren't so why are why so I think because you're saying which is which makes sense in some ways that okay um, there's not much difference like, shed some more light on it like if if I'm going through crisis I'm behaving differently because I want to get out of it quickly or no you you are behaving at a different pace hmm. and certainly oh I think that the periods of stable growth are hmm fewer and farther between than we think they are because again technology Mm. is changing your competitors are changing Mm. we've got a lot of unrest geopolitically we're beginning to see it in terms of climate there are these big systemic changes going on Mm. um you know we now have five generations in the workforce uh Mm. five generations here four generations in the workforce at least Mm. uh with different expectations and different uh perspectives on what's going on Mm. so the notion of Change is fairly constant now, and crisis is just mm-hmm. a big oscillation in in the pace of change. So, I mean, yes, in ways that there's more urgency to it, stakes may seem higher, but I am hard pressed to think of any industry right now that is in a what you could really call a stable growth. There's growth, but it tends to be fairly frenetic. It can be up and down. Um, you, you have, everyone has their, their favorite unicorns, but then you look and see, oops, all of a sudden Uber was the hot thing and then maybe not so much anymore. Mm. Um, you mentioned the telecom industry or I spent some time there when I was younger. 
an industry with a lot of change, energy, a lot of change, healthcare, certainly a lot of change, even academia. Right. Um, you know, we <laughs> look around and there are a lot of small schools going out of business, larger schools struggling for money, and just what students want is different. The demands for multidisciplinary education is very different than the traditional way of, of uh, leading in academia, which is very silo, very discipline-based. And so um, it's, I guess what I would say is that the, this, you will not go wrong by having the skills to lead well in a crisis. They will serve you well every day. There may be some people who, who, who do okay in every day, but it's like, you know, um, you know, we're in baseball season here in Boston, so there's always a sports mm -hmm. analogy. But the person who can catch the routine ground balls, yeah, anybody mm -hmm. can catch routine ground balls. <laughs> but it's a person who really can, can step up and do something dramatic when, when the, the situation demands it, who will get you to a championship team. Interesting. So, so from your perspective, um, if I'm a, if if I'm running a corporation um, of of a decent mid to mid to large cap size, do you think that a good organization, a good crisis mature organization, I would have a I would have a stable response to a space a stable process to deal with the crisis, or or I would just deal with the crisis as part of my ops somehow? Like what what would be I, a? I think you should have. Um... First of all, as we mentioned earlier, you want to have good, good sensors out there so you can catch mm. things early right. before they, they blossom into a real crisis. But then knowing that, and again, you may get hit with a hurricane. You may get an active shooter. There could be crises that hit you that aren't your, of your own making. So it's mm. worth thinking about them. Um, have a team, a designated crisis management team. And that's not their full-time job, but mm. they are trained and ready. Because when, if a crisis hits, you want to know who's going to be doing what and how they're going to work together. And they best mm -hmm. have practiced that a bit. So again, just that getting out of the panic mode, if we know what to do, the three deep breaths, well, if we know, convene the crisis team. Go to the, you know, we've got a room that we set up that we have put the right telecommunications equipment and TVs and things in there to be ready to use it as a war room. Great, we know what to do there. Mm -hmm. That gets you into sort of what we call a battle rhythm to move forward. So I think every, I think every organization ought to have that. I think every board of directors ought to have mm. some version of that. Because again, you don't know if if uh, you know when Ebola popped up. Right. Whose fault was that? Right. No one in particular, but all of a sudden it could it could plunge your company right. into a, a difficult situation. So you know measles now is popping up. Right. So be ready to handle that and if if they never have to actually handle a crisis, they only have to handle the occasional drill, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They know each other. They know how to work together. They've thought through some processes, and they're better prepared. They're more confident should something hit. Mm. There's not a lot of downside there. Interesting. And now, one thing um, I uh, uh, I want to learn from you. So, if I am observing a crisis in action, right, and I uh, I'm in that organization, and I particularly don't like the response, nor nor I have. Uh, substantial muscle to do something about it like what would you recommend what would you suggest that uh, if i'm i'm spectating or i'm just uh, looking through a crisis and i i want the leadership to have attention on this what what do you suggest so i mean i make sure i understand the question so you're saying that you, so you're you're an observer right but you have 
the ability to, to do something and, and you don't have ability to you do don't, you don't but you because want slightly the low on the on the on the totem pole on this or you are not in that the cream of the cream where things are <clears throat> getting decided on and and we see a lot of i i, I give you an example uh, during blackberries mm-hmm. um, downfall days right <clears throat> um, i spoke to one of one of their <clears throat> product heads and and um, and he said vishal we can see it uh, happening but somehow we can't it's we can't get our thoughts across like we can't get our points across to the organization and like we start mm. seeing some of those trends but nothing right so what would i tell this guy or or, or this gal what would they do so <clears throat> that's an interesting point you bring up because I know in the research, and as a gentleman at, at Dartmouth, single, Sidney Finkelstein has done a lot of research into business failure. Hmm. And what he, he and his team found was that pretty much every single time, the evidence of the impending failure was there. Hmm. People failed to heed it, often because they're so busy making money off of what's working right now, right. they're afraid to acknowledge that it's going to go away. And Blackberry's a great example, right. because for a while, everybody had a Blackberry, and then all of a sudden, no one has a no Blackberry. Exactly, right. Unless you're a government employee, in which case they still have them. But that's, yeah. you know, cap- captured market. Mm. Um, so the things there are um, being able to surface the right metaphor mm. is a great thing. is a way of getting people to pay attention to it. Um, and or the right stories. Mm. Um, so again, it's related to telecom. You know, one of the things you can say is, is this our iPhone moment? And someone mm. will say, what do you mean? I said, well, actually, you know, Nokia prototyped a smartphone several years before Apple did. Mm. And look what happened to Nokia. You know, are we, what, what do we have? You know, we're not constantly thinking about what's next. What, we're disrupting ourselves. Someone's going to disrupt us. And being able to throw out an example that gets people talking is a good one. Uh, another one that, that happened to come out of that video I was watching last evening by Barry O'Reilly was as researchers going into what, why did the Roman Empire persist for 2,000 years? Mm. And one of the really key things they found was that the Romans were not overly wedded to their way of doing things. When they mm. found something better, mm. they get rid of what they were doing and adopted the new method um, to do that. And I think it's incumbent on people farther up in the organization to be asking mm. people who are further down, so what are you seeing? What's happening here? And, and give them a voice in. Because first of all, it gets them really engaged in in, in work, hmm. but all of a sudden they may see things that that you don't. Um, and one of the stories, and this is not disaster related at all, but early in my career I worked at Bloomingdale's in New York. Hmm. I was in public relations, and the art director at the time, the creative director, was a guy named John Jay. He was hmm. a legendary. Hmm. So wrote books, won lots of awards. Still working out on the West Coast at this point. But he is um, so he's of a legend in this in this in the, in that world, and I'm walking down the hall one day. And he says, "Eric, come in here." And he was working on a new design for some shopping bag. He says, mm. "What did you th- what, what do you think about this? What, how does this hit you?" I'm like a 24 year old kid who knows nothing, mm. and here's this world class art director calls me in and says, "So what do you think?" Interesting. You know, first of all, it, it shows him that you know it, he was open enough and smart enough to say. Yeah, I'm really good, but I'm not. I, I don't know everything, so let me get some other perspective in here, which was good. And for me, I mean, I thought I worshipped the guy from then on because again, here I'm a 24 year old kid, doesn't know nothing, doesn't know anything, and I'm being asked my opinion. So, um, and then 
you know, as as a leader, you've got to always be cultivating that that frontline feedback mm. to get there. Because, you know, I, I always what I tell people is always start with the assumption that no one has all of the answer, but mm. everyone has part of the answer. Interesting. And if that's your perspective, you're always out trying to gather more pieces of the puzzle to, right. put, to put together. And um, but I think you know if, if you're further down, having that metaphor, that little intriguing thing you can throw out there um, that it, that makes it's a metaphor or an analogy to another, another situation that will get people to stop and say, so what do you mean? Mm. And then you can start talking and then they start talking and then it brings you into it. Interesting. Wow. So um, that brings us to the end of the book. And I'm going to spend a few minutes on your journey uh, before we part ways on this. So um, we ask all of our guests to share some of the qualities or some of the traits that has helped them stay successful or stay sane throughout their years. What what are those qualities that you attribute your success to? Uh, a couple. Um, one, and, and so one is that I, whether I was born this way or I can thank my parents, I'm happily thank my parents. Mm. Um, I love to learn. I read a lot. I love talking to different people. One of the the, uh, the little mottos I have, and I always keep with me to remind myself, is that. Quality output requires three to five times quality input. Mm. So that I'm out teaching a lot, I'm speaking a lot, I'm doing interviews like this. Mm-hmm. It can be really easy to think, oh, I've got, you know, just, just keep staying right. in output mode. Right. Well, the output gets pretty stale as you're doing a lot of input. So right. that, and, and in, a, in times like these that are very turbulent, the ability to keep learning and keep challenging yourself is really critical. Uh, I'm also grateful in retrospect uh, that I was laid off fairly early in my career. Mm. Um, it happened. You know, the first time it happened was probably 30 years ago. Uh, it was the same week I bought my first house. We're newly wow. married. We bought our first house, you know, assuming a mortgage, and I get laid off. <laughs> oh um, and But what it taught me was, okay, I fell down. I picked myself up. I started doing freelance work, and then eventually I got another, another job. I said, okay, I will survive this. And so that gave me the attitude going forward of, you know, so... What are they going to do? The worst they can do is throw me out of the room, throw me out of the building, mm-hmm. right? I will survive. I will pick myself up. I've got, I've got skills. I will figure this out. And so um, that to me is, has been really helpful because, again, I, I, I don't get terribly afraid of telling people the truth because what's the worst they can do is fire mm-hmm. me. Um, and that won't be the end of my, end of my life. So um, those two things. And then just being open to making relationships. I, mean, I, I have... Mm-hmm. I have been fortunate to meet a lot of people over my career. I have made a lot of relationships. And at the time, you may think, you know, I have no idea what we're going to do together eventually or what we have in common, but that's an interesting person. You hang on to that contact, and then five mm. years later, it turns out that, oh, you either connect, you know, you can help put you in touch with somebody else or you've got a question or things. And building those relationships is really critical. I think people ought to. Be attuned to that and uh, and continually build them over their career. Interesting. And um, another question we ask all of our guests to share are some of their favorite reads besides this book, um, this book. That, that you all should check out. And I'll put the links for our listeners and viewers um, so they can, they can uh, download the book and they can buy the book. So what are some of the books you could suggest that are some of the books that you, that you, that you love reading, your favorites, or whichever you want to share? Um, I've mentioned a couple here in the interview, and I, I'll reiterate them because I think they're important. Uh, in terms of how your how our brains work, mm. I think uh, Thinking Fast and Slow mm. by Dan Kahneman is, is 
the best book out there. It's about four or five years old now, but mm. it really is worthwhile. Another one that I've enjoyed is uh, called Leadership in the New Science, which is about 20 years old now, written by Margaret Wheatley. And she looked at how complexity theory and, and quantum physics helped inform how, thinking about how organizations work. Mm. Um, so I think that's a really good one. Um, and I get a lot of inspiration on looking at organizations through how cities work. So mm. a classic, one that just turned 50 years old, uh, it was last year, is The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs, mm. which mm. really talked about how neighborhoods work and how parks, you know, how you really get environments that thrive. And if you thought more of our organizations in that way, I think we would, ha we would have healthier organizations and, and much more dynamic organizations than we do now. So... Interesting, interesting reads. So, as as a as, as a last but not the least question, um, if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, or from what would that be like? What would what would be your closing remark to our listeners and viewers? I would say that um, in life there are going to be moments when you're it, and it may be a mega you know, corporate mega crisis, or it may just be something that happens in your in your neighborhood or in your family. Um, these things happen to all of us. And so be thinking about that moment when you're it. What are you going to want to do? What do you, how are you going to want people to remember you and you remember yourself in that moment? And so prepare. Prepare for, for understanding, through understanding yourself, the people around you, so that you're ready when something happens. You're the one who can step up and say, yeah, I'm it and I'm glad to be it. Awesome. With that, thank you, Eric. I think you, you are it. <laughs> and uh, you all you all are it. So uh, do check out his book and leave your comments um, on on his book page or on, 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 on this podcast. And again, thank you everyone for um, spending time with us. And till next time, thank you and goodbye and keep on learning. Bye-bye. Thank you. I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it And I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on this